again, welcome. I'm glad you're here tonight. We are, as a young church, in the middle of a teaching series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, if you brought one, that's great. You can open, open it up. Tonight we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3. Um, you can also look that up on a mobile device if you want. And the text is also up here on the screen. So we're continuing our series called Who is the Church? Studying Ephesians. We're going... Uh, pretty much verse by verse, not in exhaustive detail, but uh, consecutively through this book. Uh, that's something we believe in, by the way, and like to do because, um, for one, it prevents me from getting on hobby horses and talking about the same stuff all the time, which I would do otherwise. Um, probably like college football and stuff like that. You don't need sermons on that. I just preach what comes next in the text, and we have to listen to it and see what God has for us. And also because it helps us understand the structure of these letters better. Uh, they were intended as one unit. They were written to churches, these letters of Paul especially, and uh, studying them throughout and studying them in their entirety helps us get the whole letter and the whole message. So, that said, tonight we get to chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, okay? Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Friends, this is God's word for you tonight, so listen to it. For this reason I, Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least, the leastest, is literally what he says there, he makes up a new word, the leastest of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, there's a lot there, so let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we come to you now and ask that by your spirit you would meet with us here. And Lord, we're tired. It's been a long weekend and a long week for many of us and our attention spans are short, perhaps. Our uh, energy is low. And sometimes we are struggling, Father, and perhaps now we're struggling to believe that what you say to us in the Bible is relevant and real. And more than that is really the power of transformation in our lives. Uh, in order for any of us to believe that, in order for any of us to be changed tonight, no matter where we're coming from, no matter how long we've been Christians, no matter how good of a week we feel like we've had spiritually, no matter what we've come from this week, Lord, we need grace. If this is going to make sense to us in our heads, if it's going to 
fill our hearts with affection for you, if it's going to make a difference in the way we wake up tomorrow and live our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would come by your spirit and do that in us now. Come to us who are needy. Come to us who are worn out. Come to us who are doubting. Come to us who are filled with animosity or bitterness or apathy. Come to us, Father, who struggle with the relationships you've placed us in. Come to us now and show us your mercy. Remind us that right here in this very moment you are meeting with us through your word. And we ask that you would help us to submit ourselves under its, under its authority for our good. Lord, come and do good work on our hearts. Come and do work, good work here at Christ Church. We ask this of you, pleading with you to show us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I always enjoy and have enjoyed stories, reading stories, reading novels, and watching good TV series. And one TV series that Marianne and I watched together for six really long years, early in our marriage, long years because of the TV series, not the marriage, um, <laughs> was the show Lost. Any of you remember Lost? Now Lost is a show about this plane that crashed, and there were survivors, and it was on this deserted island out in the middle of like the South Pacific. And this island turned out to have all sorts of creepy things on it and mysteries on it. And the first few seasons of Loss, in my opinion, in my very probably not so humble opinion, were incredible. Like, this show was great. And Marianne and I both, which rarely happens, we rarely love the same show, but I think it's fair to say we both really enjoyed this show. And every Wednesday at 8, this is like before the days of DVRs, we would like actually watch live TV. Um, at 8 o'clock on Wednesdays, we watched Loss, and we loved it. And there were all sorts of mysteries. There was... Uh, a hint placed here, there was some foreshadowing there, something was going on here, and, and largely I was thinking, I can't wait to figure this out. I can't wait to see how it all comes together. And as the show progressed, I didn't listen to my wife, who about midway through season four said, we need to just stop this. This is really going south quickly. This is not going to come together. It's never going to tie together. They don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're like writing each episode as they go along. And I said, no. I'm going to exert my husband, husbandly authority, and we will watch this show, Dadgummit, through to the end. And we did, and by the finale, I was so sick and tired of Lost that I wish I had listened to Marianne a couple of years earlier and just stopped. The show had such great promise, great foreshadowing, great mystery, and it just pretty much collapsed under the weight of the expectations that it had built for itself. And if Lost is your favorite show and I've just offended you and you're never coming back to Christchurch, we can talk afterwards and I'll prove to you that I'm right about this. <laughs> lost, lost did not work out because everyone, including the writers, were lost at the end. Um, but stories are great when they do work. And very infrequently in my experience as a Christian do we think of God as a storyteller. Very infrequently do we think of the Bible primarily as a story, even though that's what it is by and large. Large percentages of the Bible are narrative. They're stories about the whole world and then all the way down to one family. And it follows that family until that family becomes a nation. And then it follows the descendants of that family. And then it follows Jesus. And then it follows Jesus' people. It's a story. Really, these letters that we're studying, the letter of Ephesians, is written in the context of a larger story. The universe... And the history of the universe is God's great story. And God's story is filled with plot twists and surprises and foreshadowing and the building of drama. And what Paul 
is telling us in this passage of his letter to the Ephesians is that the mystery, the plot of the drama has been revealed. It's sort of like the key episode of Lost that never happened, where you figure out what everything meant, where everything makes sense, where it all comes together beautifully. Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3 that that has now happened. The mystery has been made known. The mystery has been revealed in Jesus and through the church. And this mystery, Paul wants us to believe, is not a letdown. It ties together the loose ends. It makes sense of every other part of the story. The mystery is that through the gospel of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, and really all people, are equally invited to be a part of God's new humanity, which we call the church, which is the hope of the world. Now, Paul really has been writing about the church since the beginning of chapter 2. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've seen him talk about some of those things. He's written about how the gospel received by faith changes our lives. It brings us new birth. He talked about that at the beginning of chapter 2. And then he's written about, at the end of chapter 2, how the church is the new humanity. It's made up of people who, before they believed in Jesus, had nothing in common with one another. In fact, they hated each other. They couldn't stand the sight of one another. And now they called one another brothers and sisters in Jesus. And he's been writing about this church now all through chapter 2. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, and he's going to pray for the Ephesians. But as is common in Paul's letters, if you read through them, he loses his train of thought for a minute, or he gets sidetracked and goes on a 13, really a 12-verse hiatus from verse 2 to verse 13. If you look at verse 14 of chapter 3, you see him pick up again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he finally gets to the prayer that he starts in verse 1, all the way in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 14. But our text is really a parenthesis in Paul's train of thought that he's laying out to the church in Ephesus and to us tonight. And it's a parenthesis making sure the people that he was writing to, making sure we understand what it is he's been called to do and what the church has been called to be. And so I want to look at this passage with you real quick tonight. Three points. You're starting to, the reason we have three points is because we believe in the Trinity, right? You've got to have three points. It's a Christian rule. Um, three points, okay? The presentation of the mystery, the preaching of the mystery, and the purpose of the mystery. Presentation, preaching, purpose. Okay, so first Paul tells us as he gets sidetracked, look there in verse 2, about the presentation of the mystery. He's about to pray for them. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, whom a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you. Oh, by the way, assuming, verse 2, that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how the mystery, you see it? How the mystery was made known. So he lays out the mystery here, and he's already talked about this mystery to some extent in chapter 2. We looked at it last week in verses 19 through 22. The mystery basically is summed up very well in verse 6 of chapter 3. Look there with me. When Paul says something like, the mystery is, you should underline whatever comes next, because that's rare, by the way, in Paul. But he says, the mystery is, that's like a, that's like a highlighter moment, okay? So the mystery is, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles are three things, fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, that's a lot of words, but the point is that there is no longer any racial ethnic division that marks off God's people from other people. We've looked at that in the last few weeks. The law of God, which in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, 
in prior days separated, distinguished a certain people group through things like circumcision and certain dietary restrictions and certain festivals and feast days, those things are now rendered irrelevant. They've been nullified. And now anyone is welcome, Jew and Gentile. Anyone through faith in Jesus becomes a part of God's family. Now that, to us, doesn't sound so mysterious, it doesn't sound so strange, but to a first century Jew like Paul, it was unbelievably revolutionary and impactful to hear that God in Jesus is reconciling not just Israel to himself, okay, but the world to himself. And that's why Paul tells us there at the end of 6 that this happens in, in who? Christ Jesus and through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel, Anyone and everyone is welcome by faith into God's household. As we've seen in prior weeks, what Paul's saying here, don't miss this, is that the gospel levels the playing field for everybody. National Signing Day, which most of you are going to look at me really strangely, was this past week in college football. It's where I obsess over the lives of 17 and 18-year-old high school seniors to see where they're going to go to college to play football. And they recruit uh, guys based on talent and they assess their skill level by a number of stars. There's five star players, which are like the best. These guys, you know, these guys go to Alabama, unfortunately. No offense, Jason. Um, and then there's two star players who are pretty good, but they're going to go to like UTSA, you know. Um, and some guys are better than others, and there's a, there's a strict guideline by which they rate these players. There is no star ranking system in the church, Paul is saying. Everybody is on an equal plane because the gospel tells us, as we've seen, that we are all so broken that Jesus had to die for our sins. Every one of you, no matter if you've been in church your whole life or if this is the first time you've ever, ever attended a church service, you're so broken that Jesus had to die on the cross for you. But you're also so beloved by God that Jesus was willing to die on the cross for you. So, no matter who you are, the mystery is that all people are welcome to the promises of God and to the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus as he offers himself to us in the gospel. The thing I want to think about for just a second with you is how God has revealed this mystery. Remember, we've seen that God is a, a storyteller. And God has taken his sweet little time in making this mystery clear. Throughout the first two-thirds of the Bible, what we call now the Old Testament, there are small hints that this was God's plan all along, but they were only hints, and most people missed them. And now at the end, at what the Jews saw to be the end of the ages in the coming of Jesus, God has finally sort of let the cat out of the bag. He's made it clear the plot of the storyline, the mysteries have become unraveled. Everyone now gets it. A question I want to ask you is this. Why does God do it that way? Have you ever wondered that? Why does God take so much time? And you know, you could really just ask, why didn't God, if he wanted to save the world, just do it immediately after Adam and Eve fell? In Genesis 4, end of story, everyone goes to heaven and we're happy and we miss a lot of suffering. Why didn't God do that? Well, that's a big question I've just opened up for myself. There's no way to answer all of that. But I think part of the reason, part of the reason with respect to our text tonight is that good stories take time to saturate. And God is a wonderful storyteller. And verse 12 tells us that God has done this so that his, his manifold wisdom will be made known to everybody. You know, Stephen King or Tom Clancy or 
Dostoevsky, whoever your author is, if you have an author, they didn't ever write like 10 page stories, at least not that I know of. It takes time to tell a beautiful story. And so God has taken his time. And he wants us to see as we look back over the story, as we read the Bible, how beautiful in hindsight his plan has been from the very beginning. God takes his time in revealing the mystery because he wants us to see how wise and how creative and how amazing he is. And another reason, I'm sure there's many, you might be able to think of more. Here's the last one I'll give you. Why, the other reason why God takes his time in revealing the mystery is, I think, because he wants us to see how desperately we're going to need him. He, he wants us to be absolutely certain that we can't fix ourselves. And that's true on a broad historical scale, and it's, it's also true in our lives. You know, some of you might be going through something hard right now, and you might be wondering, why doesn't God just end this? I mean, if he's good, if he loves me, and if he's able to do it, which the Bible says he is, then why doesn't he just do it? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's a complex question with a complex answer, but I'm convinced that part of the answer is that God wants you to feel and to live in utter dependence on him at all times. Because our tendency is to immediately start coming up with a plan to fix ourselves on our own. God works in us a longing for him. He works in us a longing and a patience for him to take care of it, for him to renew the brokenness that exists in our lives. It's painful for us, but it teaches us important lessons about him. So the presentation of the mystery is laid forth here by Paul. It's been revealed that in Jesus, the church is composed not just of Jews, but of anyone who places their faith in him. Okay? Secondly, the preaching of the mystery. The preaching of the mystery. Now, Paul could just kind of move on here, but throughout these verses, really all throughout verses 1 through 13, he intersperses parts of his own story, his own role. Look there again in verse 2. He says, I want you to, assuming you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, to me for you, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now skip down to verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. So Paul's thinking here about his own role in the story, and he wants these Ephesian Christians, he wants you and he wants me, to understand what his role is tonight. He's telling us, really, that his role, the reason God put him on the planet, was to make known this mystery, particularly to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And there's some wonderful things here that I'm going to take a little bit of time to work through because I think they're very valuable. What we can learn here as we look at Paul's preaching of the ministry are some important and, I think, fundamental concepts about what ministry is, period. What Paul's really doing here is saying, listen, I want you to know kind of my background. I want you to know what I've been called to do. I've been called to reveal this mystery. And as he talks about what that looks like, he tells us some really, really crucial things about what our ministry should look like. So five things. Don't get freaked out. I'm not going to take a long time. Five things about ministry that we see under this heading, the preaching of the mystery. First, ministry involves verbal proclamation. Okay, look in verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to do what? Someone please tell me. To preach. To preach. Now, ministry involves many things. Preaching is one of them. And I believe Paul is saying here that preaching is essential. Deed ministry, wonderful. Community, wonderful. Mission, incredible. All those things are necessary. 
preaching. If Paul gave you his business card, preacher of the gospel is going to be in bold at the top. Preaching is what, in many ways, ministry is. When he says he's called to be a minister of God's grace, he means that he is called to be a preacher. And preaching is, is verbal proclamation. I want you to get that. There's a famous quote out there. It comes from St. Francis of Assisi. And there's a lot of things about St. Francis that I like, but I hate this quote. This quote is, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You know, that's like saying, take a bath, and if necessary, use water. It's impossible to preach the gospel without words. Now, you can demonstrate the gospel through your living, and you should. And that's what Francis meant, but his quote has been misconstrued. Preaching, which is the verbal proclamation of God's mystery revealed of the gospel, is essential to ministry, at least according to the apostle. Second, preaching or ministry involves preaching Christ. Okay? So he says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. So the core thing that Paul did in his preaching ministry was focus on the person and work of Jesus. He calls it here the unsearchable riches. And a couple of times he's used that word riches throughout Ephesians, and each time he's referencing the riches of God's grace and mercy that have been shown to us at the cross. So the second thing to get about ministry, the second thing we must get at Christ Church is that preaching is always about Jesus. If there is a sermon that's preached by a Christian minister that doesn't get him booted out of a Jewish synagogue, he has not preached the gospel. That's basically what Paul's saying here. Okay, so first, ministry involves verbal proclamation. Secondly, ministry involves preaching Jesus. Third, ministry involves preaching Jesus for everyone. Okay, to preach, verse 8, to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then verse 9, and to bring to light for who? Everyone. Everyone. What is the plan of the mystery? There was no partiality, so to speak, in Paul's proclamation. He had a burden to reach Gentiles, but he was willing to preach to anyone. And that tells us something very, very important. We preach and minister with a broad aim. We are, in many ways, preaching with a shotgun and not with a rifle. Um, we want to reach as many people as we possibly can. Preaching is intended for all, for all who will hear, for all who will come. And so the day that we, say, the day that we think is a church, you know, I love this church just the way it is with just the people it has, and I don't want it to change one bit, is the day we have lost sight of our mission. The church, by definition, is always to be changing because more and more people are to be coming and hearing the preaching of the mystery revealer. Okay, so preaching about Jesus for everyone. Fourth, ministry involves suffering. Verse 1, Paul calls himself, and he emphasizes this, a prisoner. And then in verse 13, he sort of bookends this text with that idea. He mentions it again. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you in prison. Okay? Ministry involves suffering. If you are going to be engaged in ministry, that inherently means that you are putting yourself and your life at disadvantage for the sake of other people. You're, you're consciously not making things better for yourself so that things can be better for others. Ministry involves speaking truth to a world that believes lies and living with the consequences of doing that. 
And so if you think I'm not qualified to minister to people and to serve in a church because of the really, really hard time I'm going through, Paul would tell you, no, you are eminently qualified. I wrote, I wrote most of my letters from a jail cell. Fifth, ministry is done by the unlikely and the sinful. Okay, look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It's God's grace that I'm doing what I'm doing, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am, and here's that word he made up, the leastest, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. Paul's calling to this task came when he was murdering people. You get that? Maybe you don't know the story. Paul was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles after as a Jewish man, he was murdering Gentiles who believed the very message that he started to preach just a few days later. Paul was a man who had done horrible things. And then God called him to preach. So it's similar to the suffering idea. Don't ever, ever think that you're too bad of a Christian for God to use. Don't ever, ever think. I'm, I am just too too messed up and still struggling with too many of the same issues for God to really do good work through me for others. Listen, if he can change a murderer and make him the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen, I'm pretty certain that he can deal with your relatively less significant sin issues. Yes, you must repent. Yes, you must continue to believe. But no, you must not be perfect before Jesus can come and go to work on you and through you for the good of others. We see some amazing things here about ministry when Paul talks about the preaching of the mystery. Okay, last thing, the purpose of the mystery. Look down in verse 10 with me. The purpose of the mystery, Paul's saying, this mystery, Jews and Gentiles are all welcome through faith, through the gospel. I'm the one that's been called by God to preach this to the gospels. I'm planting churches all over the place. And the reason this is all happening, verse, verse let's start in verse 9, the reason this is all happening, the reason I'm bringing to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God is so that, verse 10, through the church something may be made known. The manifold wisdom of God. Okay, so Paul says that the reason the mystery has been revealed, the purpose of everybody coming to understand what has happened in Jesus is so that God's wisdom would be made known, would abound to everyone. The reason that God takes his sweet time is to show you more about God. God has, God has a wonderfully beautiful self-infatuation complex. God is the only creature, well, he's not a creature, he's the only person, being, in the universe for whom it's wonderfully good to be obsessed with himself. And the reason that's the case is because God is the most glorious and wonderful and beautiful creature, create, creator, don't listen to the pastor's crowding heresy, being in the universe. Um, and what he's saying here is that the reason I've done all this is so that you would be able to see how great I am in my wisdom, that you will be able to see how remarkable I am in my mercy. And notice he says that the purpose is that the wisdom of God might be made known through the church. God is seen as manifoldly wise through the very existence of the church. Listen, the fact that you are here right now, the fact that this 
countercultural, multi-ethnic, loving, and united community exists. The fact that it exists is in and of itself, it is in and of itself the way that God's wisdom is revealed. Listen, the great summation of the story that God has been telling is the people he's gathering to himself by his grace. It's the church. So God's purpose is to make his wisdom known through the church to, last thing, to particular people groups, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now this, this should blow your mind. Listen, here's what's happening right now. When you come to church on Sundays, you're not just showing up to sort of get your spiritual fill for the week, say hi to a few friends, shake a few hands, and give a few pats on the back, and then go home. The reason you're here right now is because at this very moment, God, through us as a people, is showing the demonic forces at work in this world that he is stronger, that he is greater, that he is good, that he has conquered and is the victor. The church, the church is the primary piece of evidence that God gives to the demonic and evil forces at work in this world that he is the one who's going to win. Listen, we are not fighting, in a sense, a battle that hasn't yet been decided. The church, really, we're just cheerleaders. The victory has already been won. Our job is just to be happy about it and to tell people about it, to rah-rah what God has done. And in that act, we are in a very real way subverting the wicked forces that are at work in mighty ways throughout our culture, but have been defeated in him. Do you see the church with that kind of significance? Do you see what's happening uh, globally as the church expands into southern Africa and into <coughs> South America and into Southeast Asia as God telling the world his story. He is the crowning champion in Jesus. Everyone is invited into his family. It happens by faith and not by works. I don't care your color, your language, or your family background. You are welcome. Do you see what's happening when the church gathers? When the church gathers, it is in and of itself an instance of God's manifold wisdom. I love the Lord of the Rings. This will not be the last Lord of the Rings illustration you hear at Christ Church. One of the great scenes in Lord of the Rings. Fellowship of the Ring, first book, and this is really well portrayed in the movies too, um, is when they're leaving the mines of Moria, and they're running, and the big demon, you know, the Balrog is chasing them, and it's awesome in the movie. All the forks are kind of coming, and then they flee because that Balrog shows up. The Balrog shows up. You all think I'm really weird at this moment. I know. <laughs> Sometimes I have to remind myself that this isn't real. I told you I love stories. The Balrog shows up. He starts chasing them, and they cross this narrow chasm. Gandalf, the wizard in the rear, and everyone gets across the chasm. And on either side of the chasm is seemingly a bottomless dark pit. And Gandalf turns around. Ian McKellen, stud in the movie, turns around, takes his staff, and what does he say? You shall not pass. And he slams his cane, his staff. Man, that's shameful to call it a king. He slams his staff into the ground and screams it. You shall not pass. And then they fall and you can read the books to see what happens. But in a very real sense, the, the church is God's you shall not pass moment to the spiritual powers 
that are at work in this world but have been defeated. You. You. And all of your messiness. And all of your, your jacked up relationships. And all of the problems that you have and the frustrations that you feel. You are God's plot twist. You are the final cumulative piece of evidence through your faith in Jesus and your gathering together that he has won in his wisdom and in his grace. And what sort of difference would it make in Northeast San Antonio if we saw ourselves in that light more often? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And, and what a great reminder this text is, Lord. It's uh, just really remarkable that you're such a masterful craftsman, a masterful storyteller, in that you have planned this from the very beginning in your sovereign wisdom. You planned to send Jesus. You planned to offer Jesus as a death for the sins of many. You planned to make the way. The way has always been faith in him and in his work. And you've planned to create this new humanity that we are calling the church. This group of people who are broken and battered and weary and wounded, but lean upon Jesus for their hope. And you use this group of people, the church, to change the universe and to say to the evil that is present in this world that you exist and that you are the victor. And Father, as a result of that, what can we do? We can just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And we can worship you as the ruling Lord and King who are, is powerful and great and who also is loving and kind to us, your people. And so tonight we gather as a very, very small segment of your global family and give you praise for revealing to us the mystery and including us in your great story. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and respond by singing In Christ Alone.